Open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. As we come to the book of Daniel, um, obviously it's a book in the Old Testament. It would be uh, difficult to say of either Testament that one particular book is kind of the foundational book of the Old Testament or the New Testament. Daniel is certainly a significant book, to say the least. Uh, It has been said that Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament, meaning it anchors it. Daniel, in his prophecy, has more to say about the end times and the last days than any other book in the Old Testament. In fact, the book of Daniel is the key to unlocking and understanding Matthew chapters 24 and 25, which is called the Olivet Discourse. And we just uh, just studied Matthew just before the book of Acts. And the book of Daniel is also very much a key to helping us understand the book of Revelation. So there's so much here. But while Daniel certainly has prophetic content in it, the whole of the book um, is not prophetic. Only part of the book is prophetic. Some of the book is narrative and tells a bit of the story of Daniel and what happened in his life during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And so there's, there's much here for us. We're going to go through a little bit of history uh, to understand it and to put it into context. And so let's, uh, let's read, let's pray, and let's just get into it. So uh, turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. We're going to read the first, oh, um, nine verses. Uh, we're going to attempt to go through all 21. I'm not sure we'll get that far. So the book of Daniel reads as follows, if you have that scripture to put up there. Great. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants, and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. 
Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. And as we have read, we trust that you will just lead us into this, Lord, and uh, teach us, teach us the things that we need to hear. Lord, this is something that happened uh, so many years ago, so many years before Christ. But even now, Lord, it has incredible application to our lives here today in the 21st century. And so we trust that you will help us to not only understand it as you intended it, but also how we might apply it to where we are today in time and history. Lord, you're so good about these things. Teach us now. Your servants are listening. Our ears are open. Our hearts are ready. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the unique things about the book of Daniel is it is one of the most contested, if not the most contested book in the Old Testament. People like to look at the book of Daniel and question it. And and I've seen, at least in my time of studying the Bible over the years, that when a particular passage of Scripture or a book of Scripture is attacked, especially by what we might, might call liberal scholars... It's usually because of the content. Now, Revelation, in, in like manner, is attacked in the same way. And when God's word hits the nail on the head, I think that's when people squirm. That's when they scream. That's when they, they just, they don't want to know it. The light is shining so bright. Like the brightest candle, what, power, light you can think of is the word of God. And it's shining on the truth of the times. And nobody wants to hear that judgment is coming. No one likes to be told that you're wrong. You're walking in the wrong direction. You need to turn. You need to do an about face. And the book of Daniel is going to do all those things for us. In fact, in the first half of the book, there's 12 chapters. And the first six chapters are pretty packed with Information, But once we cross into chapter 7, we start to get more into the prophetic side of what Daniel had uh, lived and experienced uh, as the Lord was speaking to him there in his context. Daniel lived most of his life in this captivity in um, 605 B.C. So that's 600 years, a little more than 600 years before Christ. Jerusalem was taken by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, one thing to help you try to keep straight in your mind in the Old Testament without going into a, an Old Testament history overview here is there were two captivities. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive previously by the nation of Assyria. Now we are reading here in the book of Daniel about the kingdom of Judah and how Babylon had been brought in by the Lord to overtake them uh, as judgment for their sin. And the different Old Testament prophets address the different situations both in Israel as well as in Judah. So here in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon had come in to um, conquer Jerusalem. And this was the first of three conquests where they came in and sort of piece by piece dismantled Jerusalem. And on their first visit to Jerusalem, their first raid of Jerusalem, they kind of took the choice things. 
They didn't burn the city to the ground. They didn't take everybody. They didn't kill everybody, but they took the choicest things. They took the king and and his servants and people in the lineage of the king. And obviously, as they did that, they were were saying that we're going to take them to our domain, to our kingdom, and we're going to convert them. We're going to teach them to think like Babylonians. We're going to educate them in the Babylonian ways, and we're going to see some of that this morning as we go through the passage together. But Daniel and his friends, when they were taken captive, uh, there's great agreement among the scholars that they were probably in the neighborhood between 13 and 17 years old. So let's just kind of pick the middle of the road of maybe, say, 15, right? Imagine as a 14 or 15-year-old, you're taken captive And you've only lived that portion of your life. And that's the context that we come into in chapter 1. Daniel and his friends have been taken captive. And they're brought into this place, the, the place of Babylon, which at that time was the most, one of the most corrupt places on earth. The city of Babylon, there's so many statistics on it, and I, I, could, I could have literally taken easily the whole time today just to go through this, but the wall around the city was so thick and so tall. I mean, these are things that we've, we don't see today. They, the wall was so thick or wide that you could have a chariot race on top of the wall, six chariots abreast. That's how wide or how thick the wall was. We are told that it's many, many stories tall. And so as you're approaching the city from the distance, you see this thing. And, you know, like today, I don't know if you go in to Boston from 93 North and you get to a certain place there up in probably the Medford area and you come around a curve and boom, you can see the skyline. The same thing when you're going into the large cities, you know, Atlanta, New York City, you come to a certain point and you go, wow, and it's just like so huge and overwhelming. That's when we see the buildings. But with Babylon... It was so ominous. You know, the wall around the city communicated that this was a fortified city, that this was a place where power existed. And so as uh, the King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had come into Jerusalem to besiege it, to take it over, remember, and we're going to look at some of the prophecies here as we get into this, God himself had sent them. God. Our righteous God sent this unrighteous nation to judge uh, Israel by Assyria and Judah by Babylon for their sin because they would not repent because God had warned them repeatedly, if you continue down this path, if you choose to ignore my ways, bad things are going to happen. And then he began to tell them specifically, I'm going to bring someone, someone's going to come and they're going to captivate you. And so here we're reading in the book of Daniel here in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. In 2 Kings chapter 24, we actually find a chronicling of this story. I'll read it to you. You're welcome to turn there with me if you want. So we're going to go through a few passages of Scripture. Second Kings chapter 24, beginning in verse 10. We find the accounting of what happened. It says, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon, and the king of Babylon in the eighth year of his reign took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land, and he carried them into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000 all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So you see there just in that little chronicle of what happened when the city was overcome by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon on that raid, that he left some people in place. He put his own appointee in place to rule over the city uh, until the next time he came back or if he wanted something else from the city. And in verse 2, because continuing on, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So notice there in verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So this was not just something evil, random thing that was happening. This was the judgment of the Lord. And this should open our eyes to the fact and remind us of the fact that God is in control of the affairs of man. We are not in control of our own affairs. We think we are. We get frustrated when things don't go the way we want. But sometimes, oftentimes, it is the Lord orchestrating things. You know, there's a beautiful proverb that says, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord and he turns it whichever way he wishes. And God certainly did that here. It's not just the hearts of righteous kings, but of evil kings who are in the hands of the Lord. Now keep your finger here. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 39 because there's a prophecy in Isaiah that predates what we just read in 2 Kings that sort of sets up when this raid would come. Now what we're going to read in Isaiah 39, just to sort of set your mind here, was written 100 years before King Nebuchadnezzar came in. So Isaiah 39, we're going to read this here down through verse 8. At that time, uh, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them, And he showed them the house of his treasures. Now keep in mind, Babylon was their enemy. So this king shows, you know, a little concern, says, hey, I heard you were sick, you're doing okay, sends letters, sends a little envoy down. And so Hezekiah was like, oh man, you're so nice, maybe you're not so bad. So he takes them in and he begins to give them this detailed tour of the city. 
So back in Isaiah 39, verse 2, um, he showed them the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house and, or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, oh, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. I think he's not understanding things properly here, for he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Wow. Someone wrote, so wise and powerful is our God that he can permit men and women to make personal choices and still accomplish his purposes in this world. When he isn't permitted to rule, he will overrule. But his will shall ultimately be done and his name will be glorified. And so this thing King Hezekiah did became something that became a prophecy a hundred years later as King Nebuchadnezzar came in and everything that had been shown to these envoys from Babylon a hundred years earlier was now being taken. As the people are being taken into captivity, another person said this, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land and disgracing his name. How powerful is that? I'll read that to you again. God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land and disgracing his name. You know, God cares about his name. He cares that his people live as he desires for them to live. And when they bring disgrace upon his name as Israel and Judah did, then he will bring justice and judgment. So back to our text in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. So again, these, these young boys between 13 and 17 years old, they've been carried away. We are told that they are being made eunuchs. And of course, eunuch normally means being castrated to make them you know, sort of take away their will to overrule. And doing that was a, a way of making uh, servants very obedient and very submissive. Uh, there are some, as you read about this, that, that there seems to be some doubt as to whether castration actually took place with these young men. No one seems to know. As I read a number of resources, it seems to be a bit of a debate. So let's just assume the worst for the sake of our understanding here today. 
Verse 4, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. So when they looked over this lot of young men, they sort of picked the cream of the crop, the best of the best. And so they had some, some way, some process of evaluating them. And they actually did evaluate their intellect and their physical prow- prowess and their ability to grasp concepts and to learn. And notice that it gives sort of that list of qualities there in verse 4. Uh, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, all of those things. We were told earlier in Isaiah that they would come and take some of the royal lineage, And so there are many who believe, uh, the rabbinic tradition actually teaches that these men, Daniel uh, and his friends, were actually descendants of kings. And they were destined for either taking the throne later on or certainly being princes and people who would serve in high places. So they seem to have discerned that and they took these young men and they, they set them apart. Notice it says, whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. What they were doing, to put it bluntly, is brainwashing them, right? They were bringing them into their kingdom, teaching them their ways, immersing them in the culture, teaching them the language. And we're told uh, that in verse 5, and the king appointed them for a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So the king had this, this intensive program, basically think of it like college, but, but more intense, a three-year intensive training program where every day they're going to be in classes, everything they knew religiously, uh, spiritually, about their culture, you know, Hebrew culture, all of that is they're, they're trying to essentially erase that and reprogram to be useful to them in their kingdom. Now, part of this was done because of the conquest to say, ha, We conquered you, and we've taken the best of the best. But in taking the people and in taking the elements from the temple, they're also saying, our God just beat your God. And make no mistake, that's a key underlining, underpinning of what's happening here with the Babylonian captivity. From the Babylonian point of view, their God has ruled and reigned and has taken care of the God of the Hebrews. Somebody wrote this, and I I want to read it because as I read it, it just really, it spoke to me. This is a a commentator speaking on, on all these things that we're talking about, and he's sort of applying it to our current day. There's pressure to change our thinking. And so the obvious crossover for us is what the world, the flesh, and the devil, and what our, what our culture is doing to us. And I think this is a good time for us to be in the book of Daniel, because our culture is always doing this. There's that constant pressure. But, but as I watch the news and read and, and all of that, I, I'm just amazed at how bold uh, evil is just having its way in, its, in our world and how it's just being pushed upon us. And, you know, the LGBTQ movement is about brainwashing and forcing us to accept their way of thinking. Us meaning 
anyone who opposes their point of view, whether you're, you're consider yourself an evangelical Christian or a Catholic or whatever, if you have a different point of view, that's being pushed upon you. So think, put that in the context of what we're talking about here. There's pressure to change our thinking. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Imagine the influence these pagan Babylonian teachers have had on these teenagers. The Babylonians' literature promoted their worldview, their view of man, their view of God, their view of sin, and their view of redemption, which were all directly opposed to everything these young teens had been taught and believed while in Israel. Through archaeological evidence, uh, it concludes that undoubtedly one of the subjects Daniel and his friends would have been taught, the, uh, one of the things they would have been taught was the Babylonian art of divination. So part of what they would be taught was magic, black magic, the darkness of what Satan is doing in this world. They learned how to make predictions by interpreting unusual terrestrial and celestial phenomena and by examining sheep livers. In Mesopotamia, omens were considered the primary way by which the gods revealed their will and their intentions. When powerful communicators keep telling you the same thing over and over again, it is not hard to be influenced. Excuse me, it is hard not to be influenced. But these methods of divination would all be diametrically opposed to what these young men had been taught from God's word. Daniel likely knew these words from Isaiah, quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God, meaning God, Yahweh? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Notice here in this, this commentator's point of view, uh, well, also partly his study and his research, but what they were being taught, what was being forced upon them, that was a radical brainwashing. And so as you come to verse 5, a part of this conversion process, it says, and the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So the king said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We're not going to just put them in school and teach them and all of that. We're going to treat them as if they were eating at our table. Now, one commentator went on to give all sorts of statistics on how many uh, bulls and goats and sheep and vegetables and racks of lamb all had to be killed and prepared on a daily basis just to serve the king's court and how many gallons of wine there would be flowing at his table on a daily basis. And it was astronomical. And to say here that the king was appointing for them a daily provision was the king saying, you know, I, you're going to be eating at my table. So I want to prepare you now for what it will be like when you get to my table. But also there was sort of a hidden agenda here that if you rejected the king's portion and his delicacies, then you were in essence rejecting the king. And that sets up what's about to happen as Daniel positions himself and says, I'm not going to compromise. 
Verse six, now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. So changing their name is a part of the process, right? Saying you're no longer gonna be called by whatever name you were born with. You're now, from here forward, you're known by this new name. So let's go through these names. The name Daniel means God or Elohim is my judge. Beautiful name. It was changed to Belteshazzar, which means either Bel's prince or may Bel protect his life. Bel being one of their gods, saying you now belong to Bel. That's the equivalent of saying you no longer belong to God, you now belong to Satan. So notice how they're trying to mess with their mind through their names. The name Hananiah, which means beloved of the Lord, or it could mean Yahweh is gracious, again, a beautiful name, was changed to Shadrach, meaning illumined by the sun god, or Aku is exalted, one of their gods, one of their pagan gods. Again, putting in context, any god who is not God is of the evil one, is of Satan. So uh, illumined by Satan or Satan is exalted. Think about how Satan sort of deceptively goes and he softens the blow and says, oh, let's just say it's a coup. Let's just say it's the sun god. The name Mishael means who is like Elohim or who is as God is. His name was changed to Meshach means who is as a coup is. See the play on words. They, they did this very intentionally. They looked at their names. They must have known what their names meant because the Babylonian or Chaldean name that they gave them was the counter to what their real name meant. And then the name Azariah, meaning the Lord is my help or Yahweh is my helper. Again, a beautiful name. It was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Nego. So now they're being told from this point forward, you will no longer be called by those names. You will be called by these names. And I'm sure that they were probably forbidden from speaking those Hebrew names ever again. But notice in verse eight, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Wow. 15 years old. Taking a stand for God. I think, as I often say, and I'll say it again, this is a verse you ought to underline. You ought to circle it. You ought to highlight it. Because to me, this... This calls this forward for us. Maybe very few of us are 15 as we sit here listening to this. But as we read it, maybe we, we look at it and we say, I've never done anything like this. I've never really sat down and thought about my convictions to this degree. Thought about the word of God and what does it mean to belong to him? What does it mean to be his son or his daughter? And, and what does that mean in terms of the decisions I make and how I live my life and what I will do and what I won't do and what I will submit myself to and what I will not allow into my mind or into my heart? And that's what Daniel had done. 
As a young teen man, he had already purposed in his heart beforehand, before he ever got into a situation, before he ever got into a circumstance, he said, here's the line in my life. I will not cross it this far and no further. And here's the problem, just to be very blunt with all of us, myself included, keep in mind I'm always preaching to myself first. I think we today, the church in the 21st century, I think we are largely apostate because of this, because we have not done what Daniel did, because we have not drawn these lines for ourselves, because we have not said this far and no further. And listen, this applies to everything. It applies to our schedules, to what we will and and won't do, you know, ever, what our workplace, you know, might demand of us. You know, we we have to take stands there. Uh, Think about, you know, your TV, right? I mean, I I am just vexed. The commercial's coming on now and what they're promoting I mean, they just come right in, just very softly. They just slid under the door like a, like a fatal gas coming in. Daniel had purposed in his heart. That means he set, he ordained, he fixed, he determined, he committed ahead of time. All of those things. Before he ever got into a situation, Daniel had said as he sat down, and you know, we can do this with our Bible in our hands, open, praying, saying, no matter how I feel tomorrow, or no matter what changes in society, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to go there. I, I, this is my book. This is my belief. This is what instructs my life. This is what informs my thinking. You see, Daniel had been raised as a, as a Hebrew young man. He had been taught the scriptures up to that point in his life. And his heart was purposed. It was determined So Daniel had said, I will not compromise. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. He said he would not defile himself. That means he would not pollute or stain or desecrate himself. You see, Daniel knew that the, the foods prepared for the king's table Certainly we're not kosher from a Jewish point of view, but most of it probably had been sacrificed to idols, including the wine. So eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine implied fellowship with Babylon's cultural system. It meant you were buying in. Eating food, really? Choices of food and what you drink, that can indicate you're buying in? Yes, it can. You know, in Joshua 24, we find these words in verses 14 and 15. Joshua is saying to the people, and I get a sense as you read in Joshua 24, he's a little frustrated with the people. So he says, now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, Joshua in Joshua 24, 15 did what Daniel did here in Daniel 1, 8. Daniel had purposed in his heart. Joshua had said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's my conviction. Paul writing in Romans chapter 12, a familiar verse to all of us, verses 1 and 2. If it's not, again, look at it, read it, highlight it, and underline it. Paul wrote, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is only logical, only rational, considering who God is. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What are, the, what are they doing? They're attacking the mind, they're trying to renew their mind in the wrong direction. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. One person said this about that verse, applying it to Daniel's situation. According to Romans 12, 1 and 2, conformers are people whose lives are controlled by pressure from without. Transformers are people whose lives are controlled by power from within. Let me say that again. Conformers are people whose lives are controlled by pressure from without or from the outside, from the world. But transformers are people whose lives are controlled by power from within, by the word of God. James says in James chapter 4, verse 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Does anybody in here want to be an enemy of God? I hope not. I pray not. Or do you think, and listen to his reasoning for why he says this, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? That we belong to the Lord. The Spirit of God is jealous and He wants us for Himself. And He wants to draw us to God. Now, keep in mind, everything we're talking about here is consecration and sanctification. Something that's missing in our world and it's missing in the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. Finally, on this topic John wrote these words in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. No, no, no gray, right? Black and white. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. New Testament versions of what Daniel had declared in Daniel 1.8. It has well been said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence. That would be superstition. But obeying in spite of consequences. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequences. 
So Daniel knew by taking this stand, he was potentially putting his own neck on the chopping block because that's how much his convictions may cost him. And we have to realize the same as well, that making a choice to follow God, making a choice over certain things that we will and will not do, it may not endear us to the world. It may make people upset with us. But that's okay. It's okay for them to be upset with us because you know what? I'm not going to stand before them to give an account of my life. I stand before God. And let me remind all of us that all of us, all people, believers and unbelievers alike, all people will stand before God. And every person will give an account to God. So we need to take these things seriously. These things that Daniel did, that he thought about, the conviction, the passion in his life. He was not going to compromise. Another commentator said, Daniel made a big deal over a little thing. The only way to go on with God is to be faithful in little things. We might ask Daniel, well, why bring religion into it? But Daniel realized that his relationship with God touched every area of his life, including what he ate. And notice significantly that the root of sin goes back to what they ate in the garden. Spurgeon, who's always great for putting things in perspective, says, be ready for a bad name, be willing to be called a bigot, be prepared for the loss of friendships, be prepared for anything so long as you can stand fast by him who bought you with his precious blood. This was in the 1800s that he said this. Doesn't it ring true today? That because you take a stand for Christ and because you believe in these old-fashioned, outdated Elizabethan ways that you're a bigot and that you're a hater? Now, they're going to say that anyway, but certainly by our attitude and by how we can conduct ourselves, we can still conduct ourselves in such a way that's loving and gentle and gracious. And Daniel and his friends are going to give us an example of how to handle that in the face of opposition as we go through this. Now, verse 9. God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Wow. This sounds like what we just did in Acts. Remember when Paul was getting on the ship and he was being handed off to the guy named Julian? And remember this guy Julian just loved, just God gave him favor. And he took care of Paul and he took care of his needs and he gave him liberty and You know, God gave him favor. Here we are again. God had brought Daniel into the favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. You see, God is there working in the midst of the situation. God did it. But let me remind you, if you know anything about these stories of the Old Testament, God did it with Abraham, didn't he? Over and over, God did it with Isaac and with Isaac's servant. Remember when his servant was sent to find a wife for Rebecca? uh, Find a wife and, and it was Rebecca. With Jacob, remember how God gave Jacob favor with Laban as God you know, allowed him to go into the foreign land as he was running from his brother? Or Joseph, how can you think about or read the story of Joseph and not realize that God was with him? God gave him favor everywhere he went, whether he was in Potiphar's house, whether he was in the jail, 
Whether he was in the court of Pharaoh, God gave him favor. Or what about in the story of Esther, Esther and Mordecai? God's name not even mentioned there in that book, but God gave them favor over and over and over as you read the story. It doesn't even say God gave them favor, but it was it's obvious as you read it that God had given them favor. What about Elijah and Elisha during the time of their ministry, how God opened doors and took care of them even though the world hated them? What about David, especially before he came, became king? We just studied First and Second Samuel in the men's group. And we were... Uh, constantly reminded that God had his hand on David and he gave David favor with even his enemies. He got to stay in the enemy camp and they protected him at one point in his life. So God brought Daniel into the favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. You see, God is able to do anything, isn't he? And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, verse 10, I fear my Lord the King who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? And then you would endanger my head before the King. So he's thinking about them and he's thinking about his role. He stands between them and the King and his head will be on the chopping block if he doesn't deliver to the King's order. And I think this kind of gets to the issue of How do we solve problems when they come before us, when they're right in front of our face and they look ominous and they look impossible and they're they're mountains, they're tidal waves and we're like, how are we gonna get through this? How do we solve this? What do we do? God, what do we do? When it comes to solving the problems of life, we must ask God for the courage to face the problems humbly and honestly. The wisdom to understand it, the strength to do what he tells us to do, and the faith to trust him to take care of it. Our motive must be the glory of God and not finding a way of escape. The important question isn't, how can I get out of this, but what can I get out of this? Meaning, character, or what does God want to do in our lives. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Think about what Daniel just said and did. He said, basically, make us vegetarians for 10 days. Now, let me just stop and say something here. How many times have you seen a vegetarian, let's think about the context of what he said, who looks fatter after that period? Don't they typically lose weight, right? They may be healthy, but they've lost weight. And look at what Daniel says here. He says, you know, let's just see what happens. Just give us vegetables and water. None of the other stuff. And he says here, at the end of 10 days, and he threw himself into the hands of this this master, this this steward, the chief of the eunuchs. And he says, uh, and you examine our appearance at the end of 10 days, and as you see fit, so deal with us. Now, Daniel had the convictions, and his convictions are what motivated him to say, I don't want to do this. And in his heart, he was like, I'm not going to do this. 
But as he comes before the man who's over him, he says, well, you know, test us. Give us a chance. And in his heart and in his mind, he's saying, give God a chance. And if God doesn't deliver, and we're going to see this happen again, right? When, when they go to the, the fiery furnace a little bit later. Hey, man, if our God delivers us, great. But if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to bow to you. So he throws himself on the mercy of this, this steward. And he says, whatever you say at the end, on that last day when you look at us, if you think, you know, you compare us to them and stand us side by side, side you know, a trial side by side. If things don't work out and you say, no, this is not working. I don't want to die in the service of the king. You guys are going to eat their diet. And he says, well, so be it. Then that's what we'll do. But you go back to 1.8. Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. And he's thrown himself into this position of, I, will, I trust God more than I trust men. And I trust that God through this process is going to deliver us. Now, this is a great time to bring in James 3.17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Daniel was willing to trust God, but also maybe Daniel knew this scripture. In Exodus 23, let me read it to you, Exodus 23.25. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take away sickness from the midst of you. Wow. Daniel trusting God that he could even work through food and water and rice and beans and whatever else he was eating. And so, verse 14, he consented uh, with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter and flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. So God delivered. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave, circle that, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. There's a beautiful verse in Psalm 119 that says, you have made me wiser than my teachers. And here we are seeing that God gave them knowledge. God gave them skill in literature and wisdom. He gave them the ability to learn and to learn it well. God gave Daniel understanding and visions and dreams, which we're going to see as we go into the next chapters was very significant, very important. So God is the giver of gifts. God is the one who takes care of people. God is the deliverer. And at the end of the days, verse 18, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them. I assume this is at the end of the three years. And among them all... None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. So God had a purpose and a plan, didn't he? As you take a step back. Now, God took these men, these four young men, and he brought them through this process. He brought them into captivity, and he's taking them right before the most powerful man in the world at that time, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he put them squarely right in their court, just like he did with Moses. Right? Just like he did with Joseph. 
You see, God has done this before and he's doing it again. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Isn't that amazing, these four young men who love God and serve God? And God elevated them in the midst of a pagan court, in the midst of the center for idolatry and pagan things and magic and all of that stuff and idol worship and blood sacrifice. They're in the middle of all that and God brings them to the forefront, sets them right before the king and says, you're my representatives here in this pagan world. And hasn't God done this with us? Hasn't he set us in a place? I mean, Paul said in the book of Philippians, he says, live as lights in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. I mean, God has done and is doing this with us. This is the desire for his church. And it says in verse 21, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel purposed in his heart. And no doubt, that act, that way of living influenced the other three guys. And I think Daniel, by de facto, became sort of the leader of the, that small group of, of, of men, those four men. So you see, just the simple act of holiness and choosing whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You may look at yourself and say, well, I'm not, I'm not aspiring to leadership. I, I don't think I'm a great leader or whatever. But you see, God makes us that way by virtue of the fact that we obey him. Those who love God and those who obey God, God puts them in places of influence and leadership. Don't think about it in the terms of being a president and a CEO and whatever. That, that's great if God does that. But normally what he does is he just puts us into the lives of people. And he allows us to shine brightly. He allows us to become the influencers. He allows us, rather than being the conformed, to be the transformed and the transformers in the places where we are put. So allow God to use you in this way. And just as Daniel purposed in his heart, let me encourage and challenge all of us today to take a little time this week to consider what Daniel did and that we might get on our knees before God and do the same thing. And have boundaries, have perspectives, you know, have rules, have guidelines that are based on God's word and say this far and no further. Here's things I will do. Here's things I want to do. Here's what it might cost me, but I don't care. Obedience to God is more important than conformance to the world. God wants to do this in our lives and He wants to use us as his witnesses. He wants to make us his servants. Will you humble yourself today and become like Daniel? Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for ministering to us. Thank you for your goodness. And God, just as we've seen here that you, know, you did these things, that you, got, you gave favor, that you put these men, even though it was in captivity, you put them right where you wanted them to be. So you've done with us. May we open our eyes and see what you're doing in our lives and in the world around us. Lord, for those this morning who perhaps don't know you, they've never come to Christ, they've never believed and 
God, then we pray that this might be for them in this very moment, a time when they would bend their knee before you and just say, Lord Jesus, I I believe. I, I come to you now. I want to be forgiven. I want to follow you. I want to follow you like Daniel and his friends followed you. Lord, would you do that this morning in my life? And if that's you, then just speak to him and he will come in and he will cleanse and he will begin doing that renewing work in your life. And if you pray and you invite Christ in this morning, would you let us know and let us give you a Bible and just take time to share with you and minister to you. And Lord, for us this morning, may you use this as a, as a pivot in our lives to help us to be like Daniel, a person who is purposed, who has convictions, and who has drawn lines on compromise in our lives. God, would you give us a passion to follow you just like Daniel and his friends had? And would you give us that resolve, as we've talked about this morning, that your name and your glory are above all other things? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.